This morning we are returning to our studies on what is the church, the purpose of the church, who is the church. And this morning I want to uh, work with you through what the scriptures say in regards to when the church is leaving. When is the church leaving? Not leaving after the service here, leaving this world. (laughs) As you well know, the first coming of Jesus Christ was a surprise to the nation of Israel. It was a surprise, but it should not have been a surprise. Likewise, as we talked last week and the week before, the resurrection of Jesus Christ was a surprise to the world, correct? And yet it should not have been. The disciples should not have been surprised that Jesus Christ would resurrect. Now, when Christ came was supposed to be a surprise. The timing was supposed to be a surprise. But how he was to come, um, the circumstances surrounding his coming, the fact that he would come, and even where he would come to, all of that should not have been a surprise, all because that was explained to us in the Old Testament prophecies. Had the people been reading the scriptures, they would have known. They would have known. His second coming then should not be a surprise either. Because the scriptures do speak amply about it. Now, we are not given many details, but the Bible does speak about the second coming of Jesus Christ. We know that he will return. The return of Jesus Christ to take up his church, to take his church away, will mark the hour in which the world will no longer have the presence of God's people. All those who are in Christ, as we read earlier from 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, all those who are in Christ will be taken into the presence of God. The people of God will ascend into heaven, even as Christ ascended into heaven in Acts chapter 1. That is to say that the church will exist on this earth until Christ comes back and takes her away. Until then, my friends, keep this in mind. The church of Jesus Christ, locally and worldwide, will endure. It will endure any attack and it does happen. It will endure any sense of banishment. It will survive any sense of being canceled. The church of Jesus Christ worldwide will persist, even if there is heightened persecution. The church of Christ will continue to proclaim the gospel. I think that the greatest danger that the church faces is not persecution, it's not the threat of being canceled. The greatest threat to the church is apathy. The danger to the church is not coming from outside in, not coming from uh, dictators or governments. The greatest danger to the church, as severe as that is around the world, by the way, the greatest danger to the church comes from within from the hearts of Christians who just don't care or don't care enough and they have grown apathetic to the 
cause of Christ. But keep in mind that no matter what happens, whether the attacks are from without or from within, Jesus Christ said very clearly in Matthew 16, 18, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church of Christ. The church will prevail. And by prevail, I don't mean that it will just continue. I mean it will be victorious. It is good to be a part of the church of Jesus Christ. You are on the winning team. I know sometimes it seems like we're not winning, but I assure you, you are on the side of Christ. You are on a winning team. You will prevail. Now, there are various prophecies that give us an idea as to what to expect. Uh, But no one knows the day in which Jesus Christ is going to come back. Uh, We're told of what to look for. We're told of what are some things we can anticipate. But we do not know the day or the hour. And that's why in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 13, the church people are told to be alert and wait. In my translation, it reads, watch therefore. Be watchful, be alert, because he is coming back. We just don't know when, but he is coming back. What we have here in Matthew chapter 25 is a parable. A parable of the ten virgins, or maybe your translation reads a parable of the ten brides. And why is it virgins or brides? Well, bridesmaids, I should say. The parable of the ten bridesmaids. And why bridesmaids? Well, because a bridesmaid was understood to have to be a virgin. And so whether you refer to them as the bridesmaids or the ten virgins, we're speaking of the same people. And what we have here in this parable is an underscoring of the importance of being spiritually prepared to meet Jesus Christ when he returns for his church. Every single one of us here need to be prepared for the return of Jesus Christ. Now, for centuries, centuries, the church has been proclaiming this return of Jesus Christ. This is not new theology. It's not contemporary doctrine. This is historical, biblical teaching. The Bible has spoken on it, and therefore we preach about it, and therefore we insist on believing in it. However, what I've noticed is that with each passing decade, at least here in our American life, more and more people are saying, things are getting so bad Christ must be returning very soon. And sometimes they say it dogmatically. And you know something, if that's you, maybe you are right. Maybe it is very, very soon. Personally, I hope so. I do recall speaking to a teenage boy who thought the Lord was coming soon, and he cried and he cried. I said, but what are you crying about? He was a very... Tough kid, too, but he was crying and crying. And I said, what are you crying about? He says, I'm never going to get married. (laughs) I'm never going to have a career if he comes tomorrow. (laughs) He simply did not understand the beauty of being in the presence of God. Had he understood that beauty and the joy that will come to anyone who is living eternally in the presence of God, he would not have been uh, bemoaning the idea that he would not have these earthly experiences. Of course, there are those and a growing number of people who are saying, well, you know, he hasn't come back yet. Christ still hasn't come back. 
I don't think he's coming back at all. So that for many Christians, the return of Jesus Christ is simply becoming Christian folklore. And there's simply no reason to believe that he is coming back. You'll notice that there's very little talk about hell these days, correct? Nobody wants to come on a Sunday morning and hear about hell. It's too downright negative. There's very little talk about eternal destiny in hell these days. Fire and brimstone sermons just don't cut it. We don't have an appetite for that. But I'm noticing that there's also very little appetite for insisting that one day Christ is coming back to take his church. It's not that we don't believe in eternity. Those who are in Christ know that they will die and their their souls will be taken into the presence of God. They believe that. We believe that. However, a growing number of people are denouncing the idea that one day Christ is coming back and he's going to take his church, his church, his people will ascend, we will disappear into the presence of God. It's becoming folklore. Although the scriptures speak very clearly about it, we just read in the text in regards to it. And Matthew 25 speaks to that issue as well. I recall sitting at a wedding uh, some years ago, waiting for the groom to arrive. Usually it's the bride that's late, correct? In this case, it was the groom. The groom was 50 minutes late. Can you imagine that? And as my wife and I are sitting there, we're wondering, is the groom going to come? Maybe he's got cold feet. Maybe he's changed his mind. And later on, we discovered that we were not the only ones thinking that, including the bride. You know, waiting for the groom to come made us feel like, well, he's not coming at all. And with every minute, we were more certain that this is going to be a real blowout. And we do the same thing with Jesus Christ. Because Christ has not yet come, and Christ is the groom, the church is the bride... Because Christ has not yet come, and now it's the year 2022, we begin to wonder, well, is he actually coming? We begin to grow leery and skeptical. Waiting tends us to, make, uh, to believe that, that it's never going to happen. Well, Jesus Christ said that he will return. These are the words of Christ. He will return. And we do not know the day, we do not know the hour. In fact, we're not supposed to know the day or the hour, despite what some people try to do. Some people try to calculate and figure out when is Christ coming, and we all heard of how foolish that is. We're not supposed to know. But we are to know this, he is coming back, and as a result of knowing that he is coming for his own, we are to be alert We are to be ready. We are to live as if he were coming back today. How should I live today? With the anticipation that Christ would be coming back today. That's a wise way of living. My wife tells the story of how when she was a teenage girl, she was traveling on a bus with a bunch of other teenagers through Egypt. And in the middle of the desert, the Egyptian desert, the bus stopped at a barren 
roadside restroom. It was a restroom made out of hardened clay. No lights, just a hole on the, in the ground. But standing, standing in front of the bathroom door was an Egyptian soldier with a semi-automatic rifle. And he was standing at attention. And as these kids proceeded in and out of that mud bathroom, just one level higher than a porta john this man stood guard. He said, this is my job, and I will protect it. I will be attentive. Now, if a guard is willing to protect an elaborate porta john waiting and willing to pay attention to that, how much more should we be paying attention and be attentive, be alert to the promise of Jesus Christ that he is coming back? He is coming back. Maybe today. Well, it didn't happen yesterday. It didn't happen the day before. We don't know when. But he said he is. Let me remind you of what I said just a few moments ago. Recall that people did not believe he was coming the first time either, and he did. People did not believe that he would be resurrected, and he did. Christ said he is coming back. How much more serious should we be about this great anticipation that Christ is coming back for his own? We need to be attentive to the matter. Well, let's take a look at Matthew chapter 25, and we're going to read those 13 verses. It is a parable, and Joe's going to read it to us, and let me just remind you that a parable is a story of a common everyday event. And what Christ would do is he would take these common everyday events, tell the story, but he would associate it with spiritual truths. And so a parable is an everyday story thrown alongside some deep spiritual realities. Joe? Thank you, Pastor. Uh, Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25, we'll be reading verses 1 through 13 this morning. Let's begin. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there is not enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, you know neither the day nor the hour. Thank you. 
So here we have this story that if you did not know any better, you would say, oh, what an unfortunate episode. But we see that it is from the mouth of Jesus Christ. We see that it's here in the scriptures for a particular purpose. And so let's see what the spiritual truth is here for us. Now keep in mind, we're talking about when the church will be taken away. And here in verse 1, it begins with a description of a Jewish wedding. In the ancient Near East, it was the most celebrated social event, a wedding. Uh, here in New Jersey, it's pretty celebrated as well. You know, in most of the country, they do not have weddings like we do here. Whether you're talking Texas, Oklahoma, or whatever part of the country, here in New Jersey, our weddings are extremely elaborate. Well, in the Jewish days of Christ, it was even more so. Virtually the entire village, the whole neighborhood, would participate as a guest. And the Jewish wedding consisted of three parts. The first part was the engagement. The engagement was arranged by the parents, namely the fathers. Um, the couple had very little to do uh, in the matter of getting together and proposing and well, falling in love. These were, generally speaking, arranged marriages. Sometimes the couple didn't even know each other. And we think, how strange. Can you imagine that? Who would you end up with? By the way, till this day, in countries where this is still practiced, these marriages tend to last longer somehow. Just saying. <laughs> there was no dating. There was no sense of taking her out for a test drive to see if things are going to work out. None of that. No, no. It began with the engagement that was arranged by the parents. The second step was a betrothal ceremony. And at this ceremony, there would be an exchange of marital vows. They, they would promise their love to each other. They would promise fidelity to each other. And of course, this was done in front of witnesses. And at, at this point, the couple was considered married. However, they would remain chaste. There was no consummation of that marriage. And neither would they live together, sometimes for up to a year, so that the groom would be able to go now and find good work where he could support his wife and eventual children. He would find a place for them to live, and he would set up his home in order to bring his wife during that period. The faster he worked, the sooner she would be with him. However, they were considered married. In fact, in order for them to be separated, there would need to be a legal process for a divorce to legitimately separate them. And if one of the two were to die, the other would be considered a widow. So they were legally married. And third, there would be a banquet. There would be a celebration, a, a festivity. And that's where we come in Matthew chapter 25. It involved the entire community. And this festivity could last a whole entire week. And it would begin when the groom 
would come for his bride and sweep her away. Her bridesmaids would be waiting there with her. And the bride would wait for the groom to come along with her bridal party. The groom would come and with this great announcement that they would proceed through the town with torches would come to the bride's house where her bridesmaids were waiting with her and they would be all taken to the banquet. That's how it was done. Then the celebration would begin. The procession would usually happen at nighttime. Lamps and torches were used to illuminate the journey, but it wasn't just for illumination through dark streets. The torches were a sign that, look, we belong to the bridal party. We're with them. We are going with them. There's a great celebration. Come on, drop everything you're doing. It is now time for the party. This is a good day. It's a happy day. And indeed, people would be uh, attracted by all that attention and they would say, oh, the day has come. Drop everything you're doing. Let's go. And they would follow behind the torches. And at the end of this celebration, the best man would take the bride's hand and the groom's hand and join them together. And for the first time now, the two would be left alone and they would share a meal and then they would go to their new home. They would leave and cleave. That's how it was done. The parable of these ten virgins takes place, as I mentioned, during this third part of the wedding, the banquet, the, the, the celebration. And so it begins here at verse 1 with the word then, then. This is Jesus Christ speaking. And when he says the word then, he's talking about not just the wedding, but he's saying then the unannounced return of Christ will happen. The parable is about the return of Christ. And he's saying then, on that day, at that moment, Christ will return. And the episode is compared to being ten of those bridesmaids who are part of the bridal party, waiting for the arrival of the groom. The message here being to us that Christ is coming back, like the groom, in an unexpected moment. Nobody knows when, but he's coming. He's coming. So what do you need to do? You need to be prepared. So Christ is the groom. We are the bridesmaids. The church, the people here in this room, we, we are the bridesmaids. And what the story tells us is that Christ is going to judge those who are not spiritually prepared for when he returns. And he will reward those who are spiritually prepared for when he returns. Now the custom was that the bridesmaids were women who, um, who had never been married yet. They were young, they were chaste. And here these women represent those people who identify themselves with the church of God. People who say, oh yes, I'm a part of the church. Oh yes, I profess Christ. Oh yes, I know Christ as my Lord and Savior. Those are the bridesmaids. 
And you'll notice here that each one of the ten had their own torch. And that torch not only illuminated their path, but it identified them as being part of the bridal party. It was a symbol that, look, I was chosen to be part of this wedding. Uh, the Greek word there is lampas, for torch. And it's not really referring to a lamp, although that's where we get the word for lamp. It's more literally a, a torch. And all the torch was, was a stick with a, a cloth tightly wound at the top and then dipped in oil and then you would light it. And, and that was your, your, your light. Uh, that was the flashlight of, of the time. And now they would go out and meet the groom. Verse 1 tells us that's exactly what they did. And again, the groom refers to Jesus Christ. The torch is, however, their outward identity. They're saying, look, I am a part of God's people. I'm a part of the bridal party. I am part of the church. And I am here waiting for the return of the groom, waiting for the return of Jesus Christ, so that the wedding feast, the kingdom of heaven, may begin. And so we read once again in verse 1, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like these, like ten virgins, who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Now, notice here something about these ten women. They all appear to be very much alike, aren't they? But they're not. What we're told in the story is that five of them are prepared, and then we learn that five are not prepared. And the five that are prepared are referred to as wise, and the five that are not prepared are referred to as foolish. Five of them are wise because they bring oil for their torches. And five of them are foolish because they leave the oil behind. They have no oil for their torches. Now, of what use is a torch that cannot be lit? Of what use is a torch without the oil? It's about as useful as a battery without, rather, a flashlight without batteries. It's of no use whatsoever. Now, they all have their torches, but they cannot all be lit. If you don't have oil, you cannot light your way. But if you don't have the oil, you can also not identify, be part of that bridal party. But they sure did look prepared. I like what Pastor John MacArthur writes. He says, a torch without fuel is obviously worthless. And a profession of faith in Jesus Christ without a saving relationship with him is infinitely more worthless because one is left in spiritual darkness. Now, the other five women were wise because they do have oil. But you'll notice something here in the story, that the oil is sufficient only for each individual. In other words, they cannot share it. Look at verse 7. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. There, there was not enough to share. It's not that they're looking to be stingy, it's just the reality. Listen, if I give to use any of my oil, then two of us are going to end up in the dark. You need to go and get your own. 
Well, what we see here happening in verse 5 is that the routine of life lands on them as it does for all of us. Sometimes we make many plans, sometimes we have great anticipations, but the routine of life comes and we have to follow through. Uh, The events of life change our plans, don't they? And in this case here, they waited, they waited, they waited, they waited, and eventually they grew drowsy and they fall asleep. They seemed eager at first, yes, and they still were, but the routine of life. They got tired. And eventually they stopped fighting that drowsiness and they, they decided to go to sleep one at a time. They stopped fighting the urge and this restful sleep overcomes them. Now, now the five young ladies, they were sleeping in peace because they were ready to go. Wake me up and I'm ready to go. For them, life is normal. Everything has been prepared. Everything's in order for them to move on. Why? Because they have done everything they needed to do. They not only had their torch, they had their oil as well. So on their way out of the house, when Dad said, you have everything you need? We sure do, Dad. You have your torches? I do, Dad. Do you have your oil? Yes, I got that too, Dad. And out they went. However, the other five are asleep as well. But they have a false confidence. They think they're prepared. They think they are ready, but they're not. Far from it. Now, notice that they have a lot of time to get ready, correct? They've been sitting there for quite a while. They could have gotten ready, and yet they still were not. They foolishly ignored the priority. They simply ignored the priority. And so these five young ladies do not have oil for their torches, for their lamps. They are nearly ready, but they're not ready at all. What is essential is missing. They have only part of the essentials. They have the torch. They have no oil. In spiritual words, my friends, this is what's happening. They have religion, but they do not have Christ. They have religion, but they don't have Christ. They have all the mechanics, if you will, but they don't have the power which will make it work. They do not have the supernatural. They do not have the internal heart and soul preparation that comes from the Holy Spirit. They do not have the oil, the Spirit of God. So what do they do? They go out and try to buy the oil, you'll notice there. They figure, well, let me go purchase some of this oil, but it is too late. I'm reminded of Proverbs 23, verse 23. There we're told, buy truth, buy it. If you find it, buy it. And do not sell it. Buy wisdom, buy instruction, buy understanding. In other words, attain truth. Seek it out. 
Ephesians 5.18 compares the work of the Holy Spirit as potent wine. And we all know how wine, alcohol can change us, could change our behavior completely. Here, the Holy Spirit is compared to potent wine. God, the Holy Spirit, can change you radically. John chapter 3, verse 8 The Holy Spirit is compared to wind, powerful wind that blows where it wants to. We don't know where the wind is going to go. And so it is with the Holy Spirit. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning of verse 21, we are told that we have been anointed as believers with the Holy Spirit. These five foolish bridesmaids do not have the Holy Spirit. The five wise girls, they do. Uh, They have given their lives to Christ. Their faith is in Christ. Whereas the other five simply look like they are in Christ. But they're not. God looks down from heaven. And he knows who is who. He knows who belongs to him. He knows who does not. But he calls on us to look into our own hearts and see whether or not we belong to Christ. Now, one day it will be evident to everybody here and around the world who belongs to Christ and who doesn't. But that's not the issue. Christ already knows. One day the whole world will know. The question is, do I know? Do you know whether or not you belong to Christ? That's the question. Which of the five bridesmaids are you? The wise or the foolish? Are you prepared or do you simply look like you're prepared? Now, if you move on to verse 6, you'll notice there it speaks of the groom. Again, the groom is Jesus Christ. And the reference here is to his second coming. When the groom did come, referring to the second coming of Christ. Again, Christ the groom, the church the bride. Just as we see in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3. And the groom is delayed, verse 5 tells us, referring to Jesus Christ coming at an unexpected time. We don't know when. And with a shout, it is announced, the groom is on his way. And the call to come out into that dark, to everyone involved, come out to meet the groom. And that's when they realize that they're not all ready. But for these five foolish bridesmaids, there's no one that can can help them. There's no one that can do anything to change their situation at this point. They had ample warning. They had ample time. It is not going to work to say to the groom, you know, I I was waiting for you for a long time and you never came. It's not going to work to say, you know, I don't have the oil, but I really do admire you, Jesus. Or to say, look, I'm with them. (laughs) That doesn't work. Matthew chapter 7, verse 23, we're told that Christ is going to say this to many people. He's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. Just as the women could not give their oil to the others, my friends, So we cannot impart salvation to each other. You must secure salvation for your soul 
from the groom himself, Jesus Christ. And you must do so before he returns. You do not know when he's going to return. Salvation is not transferable. And after Christ returns, then there will be no longer any hope. You'll notice that in the scriptures, there's never the mention of purgatory. Purgatory is a human invention, a human religious invention. There is no such place where your sins will be purged. You cannot build your salvation based on the salvation of others. You can't borrow my oil. You have to obtain your own from the Holy Spirit himself. And so we were told here that at midnight, pretty late, right? At midnight, the groom shows up. And the five set out to find oil. But there's none to be found. At that hour, all the merchants are closed. Everybody's sound asleep. But by that time, nobody's willing to open the door and say, here, it's just too late. And by the time they return back to where they were to meet with the groom along with the rest of the bridal party, they discover that everyone is gone. It's a hopeless quest. And now the bridal party is left. They have already proceeded down the road. They've come to the banquet center, to the hall. The feast has begun and the doors are locked. And the truth comes out. They knock on the door and say, let us in, let us in. We were late. We didn't have the oil. But look at what the groom says that's referring to Christ. It says, they say, Lord, Lord, open up for us. And the groom responds, truly I say to you, I do not know you. You see, they never actually belonged to the bridal party. Now we know it was all a facade. And it's over. Truth is exposed. No wonder they were not ready. They never belonged. So finally, the story ends with verse 13, with a warning. A universal warning, by the way, not just to the people listening there. Everybody's given the same warning. It says, be alert then. Watch, be ready, for you do not know neither the day nor the hour of the return of Christ. Watch, therefore, for you do not know the day or the hour. You know, I think that we can, I think we can all very easily fool others and put out our best and look as pious and Christian-like as we possibly can. We could all look very Christ-like when we need to. We could all look like we belong to him and that we are ready for his return. But I think the most dangerous thing of all is that we can so easily not be ready and fool ourselves that we are. It's a pervasive problem. Notice here that in our story, half of those who profess Christ had simply fooled themselves that they were in Christ. 
That doesn't mean that half of us are fooling ourselves. It simply means that it happens often and that it's possible. So here's a question for you. Are you fooling yourself? Do you have your oil for the torch? Do you have the Holy Spirit? Do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior because you've given your life to Christ in faith and repentance? Hebrews chapter 11, 6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, we're told to examine ourselves to see whether or not we're in the Lord. Are you ready for the return of Christ? Have you given your life to Christ? Have you professed, not just in words, but from your heart said, My Lord, Jesus Christ, is indeed my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I belong to him. And though I'm a sinner, my life displays that I do belong to him. I long for him. I ache for him. My desire is him. And I try to model my life after him. Because I belong to him. It is a scary thing to think that we can actually fool ourselves in believing that we are in Christ when there's no evidence that we are. So just examine yourself. The evidence does not have to be great. This is the evidence. Have I given my life to Christ in faith and repentance, and now I seek after him? I follow him. And that, if that is true of you, then welcome. You are part of the bridal party. And one day Christ will come, and he will take you with him. We long for that day. We do not know when it's going to be. But I assure you, it will come. It will come. And I trust I won't have to say, I told you so. (laughs) Pray with me, will you? Our Lord and Savior, how good it is to know that one day your church will be taken to be in your presence eternally. Thank you, Lord, because you are good to keep your promise. Thank you, Lord, that you would give us such a promise and that you would take even us to be with you. I pray, Lord, for such a reassurance to each one of us here, that you would speak to our hearts and let us know exactly where we stand before you. And for those of us who are in you, that we would be confident of our salvation. But Lord, also wise for those who are outside of you, that they would know their own hearts and turn to you. In your name we pray. Amen.